Welcome to Altus Insights podcast series with Ray and Marlin, hosted by me, Avi. This podcast will cover monthly market updates and construction cost impacts across major markets in Canada. Hi, welcome to the Altus podcast series with Marlin Bray and myself, Ray Wong. Today we have Omar El Torai, the Director of Research at Altus Group, with more than a decade of experience in the industry in investment management and financing roles. Omar's focus at Altus is on macro capital and market trends affecting U.S. CRE market. Welcome, Omar. Thank you. Happy to be here. Great. Great to have you. Today, we are going to discuss Omar's recent webinar, the the U.S. state of the market, and discuss the differences and similarities with respect to the Canadian market. We will focus on the capital markets, then dive into the multifamily, housing, industrial, and uh, office sectors. Okay, so let's go with the first question. So, Omar, can you give us a brief overview of how has the capital markets performed in the U.S. in 2022 and what you've seen so far in 2023? So discuss perhaps some of the cap rate um, direction, assets, and regions. Absolutely. So I think what we've seen over the last year and, and two months has been some pretty big shifts, especially in terms of narrative. So right now we're in a period where the capital markets are are searching for a new narrative. As we were closing out 2022, uh, we there there was a narrative in the in, in the marketplace that was widely accepted uh, around a a Fed pivot. Uh, however, this has really faded uh, quite a bit, and I think uh, especially in the first two months of this year, uh, that has really been knocked out as. Uh, the markets have really turned more of their attention towards uh, higher expectations for uh, higher rates and higher inflation for longer. The result of this was that there was significant softening in the the tail end of last year uh, and higher correlations across asset classes. Um, I recently put a piece out in February uh, just highlighting the uh, the, the correlations of how the assets that are usually used to diversify have been trending together and how the bond market and equity market have dramatically different views and interpretations of, of what's, what lays ahead. Now, how all of this uh, relates to commercial real estate, I would categorize 2022 as a year that uh, really started off uh, very strong, and that was based on the momentum that we had seen in the, the banner year that 2021 was. Uh, so this was huge transaction volumes, uh, but then it really started to decline uh, and, and, and fizzle out through the end of the year. That was a combination of, and predominantly, uh, a rising rates that were chasing and trying to tame an inflationary, envi- a high inflationary environment. And ultimately, by the end of the year, as I mentioned, the narratives that were a little bit more optimistic uh, started to to fade away. So while 2022 mid-year might have been, you you could characterize the sentiment as being cautiously optimistic, by the end of the year, uh, I think it it was striking much more of a cautious tone. And this is very true for commercial real estate, 
uh, as well. Speaking very broadly across the property types, uh, this caution tone uh, came in the form of and, and is still uh, present uh, with concerns around effective rent growth, not necessarily just rent growth, but effective rent growth, expense management, and overall financing concerns. Well, Mark, I know there was a slowdown and based on all the factors, it's similar to that we're seeing in the Canadian marketplace. But do you think investors, do you think they're still motivated to buy or do you think they're waiting for sort of price adjustments? So I would say, uh, I think we're at a point where we're going to start seeing different types of motivations come into the, uh, really in, into the market as a whole. Uh, and there are motivated, they're certainly more motivated buyers, uh, and they're motivated sellers as well. However, where they agree on that, that where they believe that that price point is, I think that's what's stalling, or it really has been stalling the market, like transactions, uh, recently is because they, they just can't agree on where they think the right price should be. So they're off and therefore transactions won't take place. I do think that there are quite a few, that there still is uh, motivation on, I guess, both sides. Um, but the higher, not only just the higher cost of financing, but the pullback of a lot of traditional financing sources has made it uh, difficult to, to get these deals done. Plus, on top of that, you have with uh, if you if you look at and I know this is true pretty much across across the world. But um, if you if you think about Fed funds rate is has passed. Uh, so if this is your risk free rate has actually passed where cap rates were in the last you know twelve to eighteen months, and that gets really difficult to justify. Um, and 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 so I would say that. There, a repricing is needed, um, but you on top of that repricing, you also need uh, the financing to come back to the market to enable uh, transactions to take place. So basically, it's getting more expensive for deals to happen, and there's a risk element. And I, perhaps some of the assets that are selling, there's a little bit of motivation with some of those transactions. Yes. Wouldn't there be opportunists in the market though right now? I mean, that's the the thing we're seeing just anecdotally is a lot of people are sort of circling around waiting for those opportune deals to grab them while they can. Absolutely. And if you look at uh, the fundraising, so uh, I know Prequin puts out the numbers, but if you look at by strategy, right, of what real estate fund strategies are actually raising money, it's opportunistic slash distressed category is hands down the only one that is really able to fundraise at the moment. And they've, that's, uh, they started really, you saw that really take off over, uh, over all of last year. And that money has not been able to, like just looking at the, the market as a whole, and this is where you have this breakdown of, of buyers and sellers of where they think the price should be and the entry point that would justify the uh, overall return, whether that's for the investment or the, the the vehicle, the investment vehicle as a whole, it's you know it, it's still there's a bit of a spread between there uh, between their expectations. But to your point, Marlon, yes, I think I think the opportunistic uh, buyers are present, but they haven't been able to uh, be active yet. 
So we just need to wait for the market to drop a little bit more, get a little bit worse, a little more blood in the water, and then they'll be able to smell a deal. Yes. And, and I would say that if, if you look at the uh, how much money is there, it's it's I, I don't want to say it's comforting, but it is a it is kind of a backstop uh, to, to pricing as a whole. Like there will be if enough money, if enough opportunistic money is waiting for price drops and they will be competing uh, as prices drop, that actually should support pricing. Before we get into those, um, the, the, the sub-markets, is there any sort of regional differences? Because we've seen a lot of, um, I guess, uh, population shift to um, the, 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 the Sun Belt. Is there, more, is there, um, is there some more sort of uh, regions sort of at risk um, or there, or there's sort of more opportunities than elsewhere just because of some of the shift we've seen in the last few years? Yeah, and I do think that there it, it's less on uh, there are less concerns around people reversing their like migration and and moving. I guess if it, if they were coming from the northeast and moving to to the southwest or southeast, uh, there I think there's less concern that they're gonna all choose to uh, you know go back to the northeast or or go back north. Uh, however. I do think where there are certain risks is looking at the uh, really looking at the supply that is uh, is uh, coming or the, the the if you look at supply pipelines, a number of the very hot uh, Sun Belt markets have very robust supply that is going that that is lined up to be delivered in the next twelve to eighteen months and pairing that with a broader macro environment that has higher recessionary concerns or res recessionary risk uh, could could mean that uh, the deals are not necessarily going to uh, perform as they were once penciled. Okay. So this is a good segue into the the multifamily um, sector. So especially from supply and demand side. So what, what is your overall take on the multi-res side? And here you can definitely get into some of the regions just, just based on what you just described with a little bit overbuilding. So can you give us a, uh, and again, it's, it's, it's still, I think, one of the, your most um, sort of most in demand investment types on the multifamily side. Yeah, and b before I get into the negative or kind of the the counter arguments, I I would highlight that there is a lot of strength with multifamily, and uh, it really comes from the fact that the U.S. has been undersupplied uh, for housing, as well as if you look back to you have to look back to the global financial crisis and the housing bubble that formed there. And since then, we've had, we really have had over a decade of under uh, underbuilding happening in the housing space. And so we've had, because we've had this deficit, the ability, or I would say the, that, that deficit now actually is a, uh, it's almost like a strength 
right? So even if there are supply concerns in certain areas, it's actually not at the national level. Uh, it, it very much becomes market market specific um, because going into the global financial crisis, the U.S. really we really did overbuild, um, but that is not the same this time around, right? And I know those are dangerous words to say, right? Uh, this time it's different. Where, where, what I'm, what I'm really watching for is not necessarily just the top line growth, but how expenses are going to continue to perform. Uh, because if you start seeing expense ratios climbing up, as even if they're able to keep maintain, uh, like I would say, solid to neutral kind of growth on the on the on the rent side, if expenses start climbing and eroding NOI, I actually think that that's a a, a really bigger concern. So, yeah, and we're, we're we're sort of seeing the same thing, especially with the older older projects. Especially with um, with buildings and owners trying to get down to uh, net zero and the whole ESG, so definitely with um, the older buildings with capital improvements is going to increase some of the the cost standpoint. But you know what we're sort of seeing is that you know, again, Marlon, we've we've seen those twenty to thirty percent um, sort of um, headlines as well. At the same time, though, in in Toronto, there's rent control. So that um, yes, the new leases are coming in at twenty and thirty percent, but other renewals are coming in at um, two or three percent, right? So it's 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 sort of like the the, the hype is twenty thirty percent based on our low vacancy rates uh, across Canada for multifamily, but the, there's actually a good percentage of renewals that they're coming in a lot lower than what 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 the the those, those banners are are, are showing. It also depends on how much those buildings are leveraged as well as a portfolio, yeah. how much leverage have they got and where are they heading in terms of the new financing world, in terms of the overall le leverage they have in a portfolio. If you have no financing, you, the expenses go up a little bit. It's not the end of the world. How many people have no financing? That's <laughs> the question. Or don't leverage those assets for other investments. Yeah, two things I would add on multifamily there is the uh, the, the first is right on the comment around uh, – the uh, rent control, we in the last uh, twelve, yeah, last twelve months, there there have been a lot more actions in terms, and rent control really has come up uh, in the U.S. But of course, it, it's it's always, almost always a local issue. Uh, California, we actually just did a piece on uh, a uh, bill that that's gone through and, and is going to put that into uh, play across California. But then also, I just read this this morning around the uh, like Boston as well. So uh, I think rent control certainly is going to be, uh, you know, maybe not so at the fore if we're if, if rent growth starts coming down, and you're not seeing these, these huge prints of what, uh, you know, year over year growth is. Uh, but I do think affordability will be an issue that will continue to drive it, especially if, if, if we do enter a recession, that will bring it to the fore again. But uh, then another piece I would flag, especially on the multifamily, in, and it's very U.S.-centric, is the uh, agencies. So Fannie and Freddie, they didn't hit their caps uh, last year, so that meant that they ultimately had more capacity that they, they, they could be lending. Um, and similar to uh, other periods of whether it's distress or market disruption, 
the agencies do tend to play a bigger role, especially in, in, in multifamily. And uh, one change is their, their, uh, got their effect, effectively their scope of work has been uh, really uh, in the last, I think it was January of this year, uh, FHA came out and broadened their scope. So they're able to actually uh, play or, or lend uh, in, a, in a much larger area including you know smaller smaller properties and less kind of traditional multifamily. So I do think that that's certainly a, a positive as well uh, for uh, the specifically for the US uh, multifamily space. Rent control generally achieves one thing, a reduction in supply. It just start, switches the supply lighting off and it that's all it's ever achieved every time it, they, they've done it. So it's quite ridiculous in the Western world we're still talking about rent control as a means to solving a problem when it's just increased supply, which you're yeah. seeing in the U.S. right now. Increased supply is reducing rents. So just yeah. increase more. <laughs> it, it cuts two, so yeah, it cuts, cuts two ways, right? Like it, the intent is to, for one thing, but it often kind of backfires. Um, and so, but, but that being said, it's not the, just even if it's not the most effective, that doesn't mean that, uh, you know, uh, it, it's not uh, used. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's like, you know, that that is it's one of the one of the tools that is there. Unintended consequences, the things the government never thinks about. That's a theme, Marlon, that we, we should carry aboard. Well, I think uh, most of the problems in the world are unintended consequences of elected officials, but that's another, that could be a whole topic on its own. <laughs> Before we, we, we leave this area, um, we talked about the traditional lenders and in Canada, we've seen a lot more sort of uh, private lenders into the marketplace. And um, that, 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 that's causing, we're finding that um, there's a bit of a shift just because of, of uh, some of the more stringent requirements the banks and the typical traditional lenders have had compared to the, some of the private players, even though perhaps the the cost is a little bit more based on um, the the percentages, but are you seeing that that shift? Because that's definitely um, causing that um, slowdown in the in the in the vessel market, not just in multifamily as well. Yeah, absolutely. The one of the some of my favorite data uh, is or <laughs> favorite public data is coming from the Fed, and it's the Senior Loan Officer Opinion Survey uh, with the fun acronym of SLUS. Uh, and this uh, really gives an indication of the uh, expectations and kind of the uh, intentions of the, these, these senior loan officers. And one of the questions that does come up is whether or not the uh, these bank loan officers are tightening uh, or restricting, effectively restricting credit. And in the last survey, I think it was 80% said that they were they were tightening uh, for commercial real estate. Now there were minor differences and they do report it on a net percentage, right? So it's a, it, you know, it is a, but you can back into kind of, well, okay, if this is the net percentage, uh, how much, how many were actually saying that they were tightening? It was right around 80%. And then on top of that, uh, if you look at over the last, uh, whether it's 12 months, nine months, the cost of borrowing has actually gone, like just the just the interest rate has gone up uh, by 
like multiples, uh, that together means finding financing, very difficult, very difficult. You're not going to have, and this came up on the the last state of the market where you're, you're not going to have, uh, you, you don't have multiple lenders competing for your business, right? You're going out to ask multiple lenders and maybe getting one or two to bite. But if they're, if, if you're going to, if you're going to be a borrower, you ultimately are going to be following their, like, you know, it's, they, they pretty much are going to be telling you, look, this is what we're doing. If you don't fit, sorry, uh, maybe come back later. So um, the, I do think that that is certainly a challenge, and, but it has also uh, high rates plus a backing out of the, the traditional lenders has created, especially in the U.S., an opportunity for whether it's private credit funds or kind of these non, uh, let's just call them non-traditional lenders, uh, or maybe they're, they're, they're traditional, but they don't do it at size because they usually uh, manage or they're, they're going for more niche credit exposure, uh, whether that's, uh, have seen the return of MEZ, like MEZ lenders have really come back in a, a meaningful way, uh, but also uh, just lenders that are uh, m- more willing to take more risk, but that risk often comes at a price. And to sort of close off this, this area, on pricing and cap rates, you know, what direction do you think it's, it's, it's going to go over next? Based on everything you just said with supply, uh, financing, opportunities, investors in the marketplace. So two things. One, the Fed, as well as the market's reaction and how, how, they're, uh, how the market's really pricing the 10-year. Uh, that's the 10-year U.S. Treasury, right? So uh, the reason I, I first focus on the Fed is if you look historically, and they have looked historically at kind of the relationship between the Fed funds rate and cap rates. And what you can see is usually as, or historically as, as the Fed funds rate has been hiked up, cap rates can give to a certain point. So the spread can, can, can really compress uh, quite a bit, but uh, it ultimately can't keep, com- you can't keep compressing a spread. And uh, there, <laughs> yeah, there becomes an illogical point or like, you know, uh, where a point when the spread does need to give, uh, when, you know, when ri- effectively risk-free money uh, should not be worth, or sorry, risk-free money should not earn you a bigger return than money at risk. Uh, and so that is, uh, I'm certainly watching that, but then also uh, the 10-year uh, treasury is, is you know, uh, another area just because it's, it's practically wh- like, you know, it is the most used for uh, like benchmarking pricing, especially in, in, in real estate. And so with that, I would say, and uh, I've never been in the camp of fight the Fed. Uh, I, I do think that the Fed is very much trying to, they've added this kind of like board expectations and, and their, their commentary as one of their tools uh, to help guide the market um, and set their expectations. And I don't think that they're speaking necessarily in code. They, they've made it very clear that uh, they are concerned about longer lasting, like, or stickier inflation. And a, and a lot of that is being contributed by a incredibly tight labor market that has, 
concerns over a, a, a wage price spiral and which is fueling the inflation, right? And so because that, they haven't necessarily broken that yet and, and, and tamed it, expectations really are, are for them to keep hiking. Um, and I think that <laughs> this is a long answer to your, to your question. I could have probably just answered it up. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, hopefully, hopefully you're following with the logic of all, all of this goes to the point of, you know what, I do think cap rates are, are, are going to continue to go up. Um, and not just from a theoretical standpoint, but I, I, I do think that another factor that's going to uh, bring that on is if you look across the, if you do look across banks, and whether it's in their, uh, at least in the U.S., whether it's in their, their uh, filings and their call reports and their call report data, or if it's with the publicly traded uh, banks, that it's, it's great to get some of their commentary on it. But they're building up their loan loss reserves, which means that they're anticipating uh, credit issues, right? They're, they're, they're anticipating writing down and charging off some of, some of their, their credit exposure in their loan book. And because of that, I think that that is a sign that there will be some distress. And as and, and that, like lenders are in the business of lending, it's not in owning real estate. And when you and I'm, I'm this is not a call for any sort of bubble, but if if you take these kind of high level, the comments of markets have slowed down because. Uh, cost of financing has gone up and a perceived level of uncertainty has been elevated. We're still in that environment, but there's now a concern around some, some credit that's out there. And if the, the lenders do get the keys, they're likely going to be looking for sales. And if uh, there likely will be discounted prices, uh, and if those are discounted prices, that is also those, those observations are going to lead to and support higher cap rates. That's that's all the time we have for today, and, and thanks, Omar, for your insightful uh, comments. And it's interesting to see the contrast between some of the trends, some of the similarities, as well as some of the differences in U.S. and Canada. But um, I, I guess what we have to do is continue on with sort of another segment um, again with Omar to to cover the the office and the industrial sector, um, a bit of a review of 2022 and what will we expect for 2023. So please st stay tuned for the next sort of continuation of uh, this discussion of the similarities and differences between the US and Canadian markets. Thanks. Thanks, Omar. Thank you.